The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome Disability Law Show. Back for another week. John Skull's hosting, but the brains of the operation, always Martin Willems. You can reach out to Martin on your own time if you have questions beyond what we cover on the show. And that would be 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. A pile of email is coming in, so we're going to start working our way through those, pal. But we always start off with the uh, case of the day or the week that was. What do you got to talk about this week? Hello, John. Yes, thanks for that. Uh, We've spoken about this issue before, Mm -hmm. and I've had a few... I suppose I should say I spoke to a few people this week who have somewhat of the same situation, somewhat of the same problem that is sometimes something that can complicate a disability claim. And what I'm speaking about is toxic workplace disability claims. What does that mean? If you're working, and this is what I suppose I would mention, I've I've spoken to somebody in BC and then somebody in Alberta just this past week, and on other uh, other weeks I constantly speak to people with this, but this seems to be an increasing issue. I think it's with the stress of the workplace, um, stress of finances, etc. People, I suppose, their their patience isn't very very good at the moment, so there's a lot of anxiety and it spills over in how people are interacting with each other. But let's speak about the BC one first. There is somebody who worked in a bank and moved branches, was doing quite well, and then moved to a different location. In this person's personal life, there was quite turmoil, a lot of turmoil, considering the issues that she had with her husband. It was a physically abusive relationship. She moved away from that relationship and ended up with a different branch, actually moved towns. So it was a quite stressful time for her. She did fairly well with the bank. Um, and then on top of this, she then worked with somebody whom she sh- just don't did get along with, and that was the manager. Um, she found that the manager was bullying and harassing her, criticizing everything that she was doing, was speaking down to her, was mean to her, um, embarrassed her in front of other colleagues, and as one would put it, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. She was already mm. suffering and having significant difficulties with her mental health, but thought by moving branches, um, or moving away to a different town, she would get away from all the personal stuff that she had been dealing with. Unfortunately, this is not how it worked out, because when she entered into this new workplace, the toxic workplace environment finally broke her and she had a breakdown with respect to her mental health and went off work. When the medical forms were completed, the doctor noted that this is due to a workplace incident. The insurer, fairly predictably, denied the claim based on the fact that it said this is specific to her job and not her occupation. What that means is, under the terms of a disability policy, you have to prove that you are unable to perform the duties of your own occupation. Some policies may even go so far as to say um, that you could perform for any employer in any setting. So the word occupation is key here because it's different than that of your job. Mm -hmm. The position that insurers routinely take would be if there's workplace harassment, bullying happening, it's a toxic workplace environment, 
that is a workplace issue is not necessarily a disability issue so if you're having an adjustment disorder if you're having anxiety etc because of what is happening in your life at work simply change branches go work for a different employer because your mental health should then improve the, the, the stressor is not there the bullying is not happening the harassment is not happening so you should be free and ready to go go work somewhere else because the policy doesn't provide protection for your job it provides protection if you're unable to perform the duties of your occupation so there's quite a difference between those two but as routinely as I see these things happen in this lady's circumstance she already had significant mental health stresses in her life. Mm -hmm. I could go even further to say that the stresses that she had in her life followed her to the town where she now moved to. Uh, a co-worker had found out about what was happening with her and her husband. It became quite public and she was ridiculed in public as well. So she had a complete breakdown. So there's a much bigger story here than just I was working at a with an employer where there was somebody who was being toxic and mean to me so the message I suppose is when you submit medical information in support of your claim if it is due to toxic work to a toxic workplace environment or bullying and harassment few things to remember one thing is if it is entirely due to those issues remember the insurance company may want you to apply for work safe benefits because work safe legislation provides that there is protection there there are benefits payable if you have a recognized mental health disorder within the dsm-5 which is the the book that psychiatrists look at mm. to diagnose conditions and it has to be entirely related to the workplace and it has to be something that goes above and beyond the normal interactions that one would expect so that's one thing to remember but the other thing is if there are other things happening in your life and I've seen this routinely. People will have uh, potentially, you know, childhood abuse or other types of abuse that makes them more vulnerable to when they are faced with these stresses and they easily, easily develop a mental health disorder. That information may be helpful to provide as well to put things into context that this isn't something where the person is just going to recover because you put them in a different work environment. They first need to be treated now because of the mental health disorder that they have developed and it may be due to multiple reasons right like i say personal stresses in your life and the workplace stress but the point is it doesn't just miraculously disappear because you place the person in a different environment where the workplace stressor is not present anymore and doctors and persons making claims should be aware of these things so that when you do submit your claim that it is seen in context if the workplace played a role mention that that is not necessarily all due to the workplace um, in this situation with this lady I'm very very confident that we will be able to assist and we actually are going to assist because this denial is not proper if you have a mental health disorder and it is disabling and your doctor agrees you cannot work it doesn't matter why it's there it first needs to be treated be it as a result of stresses in your personal life or if it is entirely due to a workplace stressor it still needs to be treated just because the workplace caused it doesn't mean that the insurer should not pay it the other one that i can speak about is somebody in alberta who works in the oil fields um, similar situation worked with a company had great performance reviews mm -hmm. all along and then things changed 
and a new person came into play, a new manager, things were not going well, they clearly had a personality clash and there was a situation of bullying and harassment. But also there were quite significant stresses happening in this person's personal life. Um, remarkably so that this person carried on working throughout of all of this. And again, this was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Similar situation um, and the claim was denied based on look, we think that you could go work in an, your own job yeah. or your own occupation just in a different location. So you will, I know the more I speak about this, hopefully people will listen, but I know that there will be more cases like this in the future. You try to get the medical evidence in context when you submit the claim because the insurance companies will routinely deny these cases saying that it's a workplace issue it's not a disability when in fact it is a disability so if you have this happening to you or if you know somebody in your family or a friend who is going through a similar circumstance or if you know that this is something that may be coming because you can feel the anxiety building up because your workplace is so stressful remember the words that I've just said now take heed of this because it is going to be key when you do submit your claim at a later time and if your claim is denied please reach out to us because you have to be careful what information you submit if you want to go down the road of an appeal i've seen many people submit appeals where they think the information that they're providing is really helpful but it isn't because all they speak about is how toxic that workplace was and they forget about speaking about the other issues where you're literally then playing into the other party's hand so if you do have something like this happening and there is a denial reach out to us because we can advise you of what your options are we say this every week we yep. can look at the denial letter we can look at the policy we can look at the medical information and specifically your personal circumstances and then provide you with an opinion as to what your options are so can you you can make an informed opinion we say this every week as well we represent clients throughout canada other than quebec so long story short not that that could be done really uh, <laughs> reach out to us if there is a denial and we will assist you with at least providing information and again uh, Martin's experience with all this and his team uh, far always yours to do yourself a favor and uh, and reach out indeed I want to start on our first email it says uh, hey Martin I have long standing RRMS I suffered a relapse although the MRI does not show progression in the lesion activity my fatigue is overwhelming the short term disability insured deny my claim and I appealed twice is it even worth applying for LTD benefits LTD benefits are insured by a different insurance company I feel defeated man I'm just tired of fighting when I see this, it really frustrates me because I, it, I don't understand this. It is somebody who has a very, very disabling condition. I fully understand that MS, lots of people work with it. But it doesn't necessarily, as far as I understand, it doesn't necessarily need to show that they are that there's progression of lesion activity on, on MRIs. So... You engage in this appeal process, which you're asking the same entity who denied the claim to now approve it. Gone through this twice, still denied, obviously defeated, having significant stress because of the denial. Now there is a different insurance company who's going to be looking at this. Um, Yes, you most definitely must apply, because if you don't apply, you're going to lose any benefit that you may be able to get. Um, With respect to the short-term one, 
we should look at that as well. You see where these appeals may go, so there may be an option here to pursue a legal claim. And with respect to the long-term one, I should say this as well, the definition for long-term disability is that you have to show disability, that you're totally disabled throughout the qualifying period, which would be this short-term period. So if the short-term disability denied you, it's quite likely that the LTD insurer may deny you as well. Having said that, if that were to happen, we are there to assist. And listening and reading to this, this question, we will be most definitely able to assist with this. We'll take a short break into more of your emails. In the meantime, want to send one along? Sure. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And that phone number to reach Martin and crew, 1-855-821-5900. And we'll continue after a short break with more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, we're back with the Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is your lawyer every week and always saying, you know, reach out if you just have some questions or if you're confused by something dealing with a a long-term disability insurer, maybe it's adjuster, maybe it's, uh, you know, anybody on that end and they're throwing you a curveball, there's answers out there. Just call the number 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, next email says, guys, have a rare condition that has taken a long time to be diagnosed. It affects my balance. It's called PPPD. I feel nauseous, dizzy, tired, and have difficulty with energy. I feel drunk at times, even though I don't drink. It's awful. I have difficulty concentrating. When I look at a computer screen, my head spins. Would this qualify as a disability? I believe from what I'm told, this is a vestibular disorder. Oh, they're the worst, I'm telling you. Says, I have heard from others that their PPPD cases were denied. Martin, what do you think? Very good question, and it's the right place to send that question because we deal with disability claims resulting from all types of conditions on a weekly basis. So and not surprisingly, I have come across uh, PPPD in the context of denied disability cases. So it stands for persistent postural perceptual dizziness. You know, it's <laughs> it's awful. What it's a awful. mouthful. It's awful to say and it's an awful condition to have. Um, it really is. I, I've... I can remember a few where we were involved and, and, you know, I don't understand why these cases get denied. The the restrictions and limitations and the symptoms can be just horrific, uh, where people literally, like this person says, he feels drunk, um, even though he doesn't drink. I've seen people with this condition walk, where it looks like they are staggering from side to side because they're having difficulty. They, um, as far as I understand how this works, is your system also gets overloaded when you look at computer screens because it's constantly trying to compensate to get things going in the right direction. So it can be an extremely disabling condition, uh, but just describing it to others, they don't always understand it. So when they actually see the person and you get proper medical evidence in place, it is something that really should be approved. But this person is correct. Many of these PPPD cases are denied. So is there something that you can do most definitely remember a disability claim is based on yes the diagnosis is important but the most important thing is functional restrictions and limitations resulting from the diagnosis a disability policy may say the definition for td total disability journey is you must have an illness or a condition that prevents you from engaging in any in your own occupation or in any occupation depending on where you are at in the timeline of benefits being paid. 
Now, what does that mean? Lots of, I will use an example, and we use, I use this often. Lots of people have depression, lots of people have anxiety or other conditions, yet they work. So, if your doctor were to say, you have this condition, you have PPPD, you cannot work. Your claim very likely is not going to be approved. Why not? Because the, the diagnosis is helpful. But what is most important is why are you unable to work because of that diagnosis? What are the restrictions and limitations? In a situation like this where you have PPPD or some other rare disease or illness, and there are many of them where insurers may not be aware of it, they may have their doctors look at it, but the doctor looking at it may also not have the proper qualifications. When I mean the doctor looks at it, it would be when the insurance company has one of their in-house doctors review the clinical records and then comments on whether there are restrictions and limitations without even having seen, met, assessed or even spoken with the person. So how much does that really count? You know, when a person like that, not a person like that, but when you get an opinion like that. Doctors who see their patients on a regular basis will be in a position to give opinions on whether their clients or their patients rather are able to perform the duties of the occupation or rather they can also speak about the restrictions and limitations with PPPD there's significant fatigue this person feels tired all the time they don't have energy they feel nauseous they feel dizzy now imagine how you would be able to work if you have to sit in front of a computer screen or you have a physical job it doesn't matter if you feel that way regardless of what you're doing you're feeling drunk you the room is spinning you feel dizzy cannot focus you're tired obviously that's going to affect your ability to perform your duties of your occupation so those would be the restrictions and limitations and please do not feel discouraged because if this cases like these are denied or any other case there is help reach out to us and we can as i said before assist you with the denial by pursuing a legal claim most likely where you don't need to deal with the insurance company anymore you don't need to convince them that all communications go through us and as Savan, my partner, always says, we've helped many, many cases, many, many people with their cases getting proper compensation. This is an interesting question, Martin. We got through emails. It says, guys, can you advise that CPPD, CPP disability, and disability benefits are affected if a disabled person gets married? I've been told to make it clawed back, but I don't know for sure. Thank you. This isn't a very interesting question. It's not one that I've seen before. So if you look at a, we always go back to basics, the disability policy is a yep. contract. The contract provides that certain things can be deducted. In other words, clawed back, I suppose, is the different term. Yep. Disability be benefits paid from other sources may be deducted. So CPP, disability benefits, probably the most common one that you would see as a direct offset from an LTD benefit. Whether the person is married or not, I don't think affects their entitlement to CPP disability benefits. Um, and I also don't see how that would affect the LTD benefit. So if you were receiving $2,000 for your long-term disability benefit and you got CPP disability for $1,000, that $1,000 under the terms of the policy most policies, I should say, will have it that that $1,000 get deducted. If you then get married afterwards, I don't see how that would be affecting things. What I could say is there may be provincial benefits where, for example, in British Columbia, there's something called PWD, which is Persons with Disabilities. And that's a social benefit, so it's not necessarily income replacement. And the way that that is looked at is 
it's based on your household income so if you live by yourself and you have no income coming in the LTD claim has been denied you're not getting CPP disability yet although you still can I suppose um, but you have no other sources of income you're living by yourself you may want to apply for PWD because that is based on a means test which means they're looking at the household income how does it affect this question um, if you were living by yourself now you're getting married you may be living with somebody who is working who has income in other words they're going to look at the household income whether you qualify for those benefits but in terms of a LTD policy the long-term disability benefit under that policy it shouldn't affect that in other words there should be no deduction or it should not be denied because you're living with somebody who has an income Another email. Guys, keep sending them. We love them. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And the number to reach Martin, too, is 1-855-821-5900. Hello, Martin. What if medication is not working for me? Do I have uh, a choice to stop it? I guess they're worried about the um, insurer getting wind of this and cutting off their benefit for not uh, doing treatments, right? You know, if there are people listening to this show every week, they probably already know what I'm going to say now. Uh, you have to see your doctor on a regular basis so that your doctor will be in a position to properly advise you. If you've been trying a medication for a period of time, let's use, for example, an antidepressant, and the antidepressant isn't working, report that to the doctor. Or if the antidepressant is giving you significant side effects, I've seen cases where people have tried different medications and it made them feel suicidal, even homicidal, or it had significant other side effects. Report that to the doctor because then the doctor will probably advise you to stop taking the medication and possibly try something else. So going back to this question, what if the medication is not working? Do I have a choice to stop it? Follow your doctor's treatment advice. And I'm sure that if you are reporting to the doctor that things are not getting better um, and you've been trying this medication, like I say, you probably will be recommended to do something else. Can the insurance company deduct your or cease your benefits, terminate your claim, close your claim if you say you're not going to take this medication any longer? I think with your doctor's support saying that, the trial hasn't worked it failed there was no benefit or it actually worsened issues or if it had side effects it's going to be a very weak position on the side of the insurance company to then say well we want you to carry on taking this medication which isn't working because our policy requires that what the policy does require is that you must be under the regular care of a physician and follow appropriate treatment in terms of the condition that you have and if the treatment isn't working how can it be appropriate Let's get on to this one. We've had a similar question like this before, and I, I like these. Martin says, guys, uh, rental property. If someone has a rental property and they're considered, uh, are they considered to have a business and an income? If someone has benefits of $2,000 from LTD, for example, and the rental income is also $2,000 a month, is it a wash? Does that mean it gets reduced? Good question, and I don't mind that these questions keep coming in because I'm sure that there are new listeners who may not have heard us speak about this, although we speak about this very regularly, as you say. Um, go back to the contract. The contract, the policy, has certain offsets, like I just discussed a few minutes ago. CPP disability would be an offset. Is rental income a offset? 
If you live in a house and you have a basement suite and you're renting out that basement suite, it should not be an offset under the policy. That is not in employment income. Similar to if you were to have investments, passive investments, and you're getting some income from that. That is not deemed to be employment income. The policies generally would have as deductions, things that you would have contributed to through your employment, like CPP disability, work safe benefits, um, employment income, sometimes severance may be depending on the language of the policy. But if it is simply rental income, I do not see how that would be an offset. But again, the most important thing, the golden rule, is that you look at what does the policy provide because the policy will detail what the offsets are. And there will be direct ones like CPP, disability benefits and work safe benefits and there might be indirect ones like benefits that your children may get through your CPP and that is an entirely different calculation so if there are questions regarding that how does that get um, deducted or how does that get quantified if you've got an issue with the way that the insurance company is doing it again reach out to us because we do offer these free consultations so we can look at what your exact circumstances are so when you got a moment, pull out that policy and have a good read-through. If there's anything uh, that's confusing about it, reach out to Martin and his team, and they can uh, they can guide you for sure, as he just said. Here is the number to reach out to on the phone, too, 1-855-821-5900. Email that we use, we're going back to, in a moment, is help at disabilityrights.ca. For all other matters, you can go to mydisabilityquestions.com and type your questions in there as well, anonymously. So you go there, you type it in. You can even search it. That's got a searchable database. That's the way that algorithm works. And if your question has been asked previously and answered, you can read it and walk away. Save some time. If not, leave it, and it will get answered again. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Short break and back with more of your emails right here on the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome back to Disability Law Show. John Scholes and, of course, Martin Willips is here to answer all of your questions on and off air. That's 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's where we're going. Next email, Martin. I was initially denied STD, short-term disability benefits. I appealed and was successful. Wow. So I received benefits. I uh, then was on LTD for six months, and the insured denied my claim last week. When does the limitation period start to run? When they initially deny my claim for STD benefits, even though I did ultimately receive the money, or when they re- uh, when they deny my LTD benefits last week, I find it confusing. Seriously. Also, what is the difference between the deadline for the appeal and the limitation period? Could you break it down? Yes, yes. And this is an excellent question, and I'm not surprised that it is confusing because it is or appears to be confusing because it can be. And I see even lawyers who don't practice in this area seem to get confused about it. So. What is the difference between an appeal period and the difference between a limitation period and also when does it start to run? So let's look at the facts here. There was an application made for short-term disability benefits. It was denied. The limitation period with the timeline within which you can pursue a legal claim started to run from the date of that denial. So if the benefits were not paid during those two years, you would make sure that you would pursue a legal claim within that time frame. However, there was an appeal done and surprisingly it was successful. So whatever you needed to get from this short-term disability policy, you did receive. 
Then there was a claim for long-term disability. It was paid for six months and again the insurance company denied the claim. So now the question is when does the limitation period start to run? So let me break this down. A limitation period is a timeline within which you must pursue a legal claim because if you don't mm -hmm. and your benefits are still not being paid you will not have an option very likely won't have an option to pursue that claim and you will not get anything so the limitation period is the timeline within which you must file a legal claim and the limitation period is defined in the insurance act um, depending on which province you're in if it's in Alberta or BC they read fairly similarly uh, when does it start to run? It's always a good question. So if you were paid for two years, oh sorry, if you were paid for six months, then they denied it. It might be that the limitation period starts to run from the date that the next payment would have had to be made. Sometimes if no payments had been made, it would start from the date that the insurance company denied your claim. And very importantly to understand, or important to understand is the limitation period continues to run regardless of whether you are pursuing an appeal if you decided to go down that road. The question also then is what is the difference between a deadline for the appeal and the limitation period? So the insurance company may write you a letter and they will say we're going to deny your claim now. These are your options. You've got the appeal option and it may say we're going to give you a certain period of time to appeal this denial and then further down they must now advise you of the limitation period they didn't need to do that pre-2012 but the legislature intervened so now insurance companies must tell you that there is a limitation period and what it is i don't think all insurance companies do that in a proper way so there may be a loophole there if you missed a two-year timeline which means that i will want to look at the letter but without going there yet looking at the appeal period that is given to you by the insurance company very few policies do speak about a contractual appeal period. If it is contractual, then it means within a certain period of time, you must appeal. If it is not defined in the contract or the policy, then it simply is the insurance company imposing a deadline, which they cannot do, because the policy is the contract. So if you miss that appeal deadline, uh, if a claim is denied, I would say speak to us in any event so you can understand what your options are. But if you feel that you missed the appeal deadline and now you may not have no other option, you do. You do have an option. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to reach out to us so we can look at it. Because you can still pursue a legal claim as long as it is done within those two years. So again, when does it start to run? When the insurance company denies the claim or if the benefits had been made from the date the next payment would have had to be made. But I would want to warn everybody, caution everybody, if you have this situation where the claim is denied, don't you know, look at the letter and decide that you understand what that means. We can help you understand what the limitation period is because if if anything from what I say sticks, this part is important. You cannot miss the limitation period right. deadline. You must file, if your benefit still remains unpaid, you must file a claim within that timeline. And if you did miss it and you think you have no recourse, still reach out to us because there are ways that we may be able to assist you. For example, if the insurance company did not abide by its notice provisions, and uh, oh, I don't want to speak about the acts, etc. But th there is a regulation that provides that the insurance company must advise you of the limitation period itself. And some letters that insurance companies write 
right, I don't think abides by that regulations, but it really is dependent on this exact circumstance. So it's a very long answer, I understand that, but if your claim is denied and you're worrying about that, reach out to us. Another question here. This is, uh, again, we don't get this one too often, Martin. Check it out. It says, can a private LTD company make me start claiming Canada Pension Plan and deduct that amount from my LTD check? I just turned 60 and don't plan to apply for CPP until I'm 65. So another six, another five years ahead. What do you think? So go back to what we said. I say this almost to every question. The policy is a contract. Many of these policies provide, most of them, especially if it's a group policy, may provide that you have to apply for CPP disability benefits and if you do not do it then the insurance company may actually estimate what that amount is and deduct it in any event so it depends on where you are at as well right if the policy is within the own occupation period still and they're expecting you to apply you may want to look into that have a discussion with a lawyer about that but in general you are expected to apply for cpp disability benefits depending on the language of your policy and if you don't they may deduct it so you're just in 60 you don't want to apply for cpp until you turn 65. remember right. if you submitted sufficient contributions throughout your working life it may be that your cpp disability benefit may actually be higher than what you think your cpp benefit is now at the age of 60. and if you do qualify for your cpp disability benefit and it continues to be paid to the age of 65 it will just transition into regular cpp in any event so it's not regular cpp that you're applying for i just want to make sure when uh, this business says that they're expecting them to apply for the canada pension plan it has to be the canada pension plan disability benefit which is a little bit different right it's not your early retirement that you're taking it is a disability benefit that you are applying for and that is one of those ones that can get clawed back, but that's okay because it, if it does get clawed back or if your insurance does get cut off, you'll have some income too. So there's really no uh, bad thing about applying for it and receiving CPP disability, right? I don't think that there is a downside unless there is the one is taxable and the other one is non-taxable, which unfortunately right. is the situation. But then if that were to happen, we, you should also consider applying for the disability tax, tax credit, credit, which may at least assist with, you know, some tax uh how do you what relief you say? Anyway, tax right? benefit, relief yeah. that's a good yeah. word some tax relief don't really see those two words together but yes tax <laughs> and relief <laughs> we'll take a short break into a few more emails here with our remaining moments uh in the meantime the number to call out even after the show not just for the hour to reach martin and his crew 1-855-821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca's email we're going right back to it after a short break hang on lots more coming up you're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You bet we're back. This is the Disability Law Show. If you're reaching out any time, your uh, front line is Martin Willems and his team. has got a great one behind them. They're all very seasoned and schooled in this particular arena so you don't want to go it alone it's really confusing there can be mounds of paperwork and confusion and uh, not threats but they can seem overwhelming dealing with that long-term disability insurer so always reach out one 821 5900 email help at disabilityrights.ca 
Okay, next email, Martin. Let me scroll a little bit. God, oh, God, so many today. It's great. It says, uh, guys, I was told by my insurance that they will only cover me for two years of LTD, long-term disability. What happens after the two years if I can't return to work because of my illness? And what are my rights when it comes to me not being able to go back to work ever because of my disability? Thank you so much. Okay, this is a good question because it goes back to what does the policy say? There are some group policies out there that only provide for benefits for two years. Uh, I've seen them. They aren't many. They're not obviously the best policy because you would right. want to have a policy that pays you or at least covers you to the age of 65. So, and this is a question which I feel is extremely important because when you get that letter from the insurance company, I've seen ones where it appears to be when they say, we, we will cover you for the two years of your own occupation. But then people don't always understand that what that, necess- what that means is we will provide you benefits, or at least the contract forces us to provide you benefits, if you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation for two years. But it also provides that if you cannot perform the duties of any other occupation based on your transferable skills, in other words, your education, your training, and your experience, and that would pay you roughly the same amount as your benefit if there's no percentage defined in the policy, that the insurance company should continue to pay your benefits. It's a discussion that we have every week. Many cases do get denied at the change of definition. So. In response to this person's question, I was told my insurance that they will only cover me for two years of LTD. We want to make sure that that is actually the case. Does this mean that they will only cover two years because the policy limits benefits to two years? Or does it mean that the insurance company will pay two years if you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation and then the definition changes? And if you still qualify because you cannot perform the duties of any other commensurate occupation, that they should still continue to pay you. That's very important. So get the policy. If there is an approval letter, look at the definition because there may be a definition contained in that approval letter. And if there's a denial letter, it may also advise why. Because when the insurance companies deny people at the change of definition, they likely will say, we have decided that we think you can perform the duties of another occupation. And they sometimes do something called a transferable skills analysis where they may define in that letter, we think you could go work as a dispatcher, for example, whatever it is, if you were doing truck driving, we can no longer do that. It may be that the the letter will detail what those occupations are that the insurance company thinks that you could do. And you may entirely disagree. And again, you know what to do. You phone us if you disagree with that. But you would want to know in the first instance, does this policy provide benefits into the any occupation phase? The next part of this question is, what are my rights when it comes to me not being able to work ever because of my disability? Well, first things first, if you do qualify, or, or rather if your policy covers you to the age of 65, in other words, it covers you for benefits into the any occupation phase, then you should be applying for those, or at least you should do something about it if they were to deny it, because it should automatically transition if they accept that you cannot work in any other occupation. If they don't, you reach out to us. The other thing that you can do is you apply for CPP disability benefits as we discussed before. Um, There's a lot of discussion these days about what is coming. So next year, 
um, maybe next year there may be a new disability benefit in place being paid by the Canadian, by the federal government. It's called the Canadian Disability Benefit, and I know there's been a lot of talk about that um, in the media and in disability groups. So there may be a new benefit that you could qualify for as well. We don't know the details yet, but all of that will be, I suppose, become known over the next year or so with respect to what will be under the regulations. But short thing, just to keep it short, if you are denied reach out to us and we're going to look at it with you let's get to another email let's scroll down to uh what we got here martin there's so many i think we're on number nine or ten now uh yeah i think god i'm gonna do it it's probably oh, nine. Wow. Oh wow there we are number no it's a long one here we go let's get uh, let's dig into this sucker it says guys the reason i was off work originally according to the physician note is severe abdominal pain and altered bowel habit uh, it has been investigated and diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. The insurer had listed all my conditions in the denial letter, but this is not why I was off work. The new appeal specialist had requested my history of X medication that I had been prescribed in December 2017. The pre-existing period is June 26, 2021 to September 26, 2021. I had it last filled July 16, 2020 and finished over a time of six weeks. As I recall, it was a very stressful time. I did not fill another prescription until October of 2021, and it uh, took it for maybe five days in October or November 2021. The pre-existing clause does not pertain to me. Any of the reason that I've been off work and I did not use or fill this prescription for over one year before starting work at my employer, can you please provide help? I want uh, to point this out to the insurer before it's too late. This process has been extremely stressful. I've had no income, and because of my poor health, my major depression, anxiety is off the charts. My spouse and I split up because of everything going on. Wow. Break that down. What is that exactly does that mean? I know you got okay. two minutes, but do, uh, do what you can, pal. Okay. So this is a difficult situation, but I will say this. The reason why the insurance company denied this, based on what I can see, is that this person was working or was covered under the group policy for less than one year. We speak about this frequently. So they're denying the claim based on a pre-existing condition. We say this every time, a pre-existing condition does not what does not mean what it sounds like in layman terms. We want to look at what the policy says. In this policy, it speaks about if you were taking prescription during a specific period of time that relates to the disabling condition, then you are excluded because of the definition of pre-existing condition. Reading this, the person was not taking that medication, so I'm not sure why the insurance company is saying that this is pre-existing. Also, it seems that there is another condition at play which the person did not have any treatment before they became disabled. So there definitely is an arguable claim here as to that this is not a pre-existing condition. I'll leave this as the last message. Cases do get denied because of pre-existing conditions. It is complicated. I get that. It can be extremely complex. We want to look at the clinical records. We want to look at what the definition for pre-existing is. And if the insurance company denied your claim, please reach out to us so we can review that with you because you do need some guidance as to understand what the pre-existing condition is and how it's interpreted and how, most importantly, it applies to your situation because it often does not. All right, and that's it for another day, man. Go rest your throat. You've done a lot of talking, a lot of questions, answers <laughs> for, uh, for sure, but uh, you can still reach out to Martin on your own time. 
through that email address that we use every uh, every show or a, uh, a phone call. The email address first is help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. And for quick, fast, easy-to-digest notations and information all about the LTD topic, go here, ltdfaq.ca. It's really easy, ltdfaq.ca. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.